Thank you, Rupa. Please do keep your Bibles open at that, uh, the first of those readings, Matthew chapter 5. And as you can see from the heading there, this uh, section of the Bible is known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Are the Illings here, Mark and Annie? Not here yet. Well, it's my pleasure to announce the birth of Felicity Neve Illing, who arrived in this world not this Tuesday, but the one before, and uh, is the latest addition to our church. So we look forward to welcoming her with her two sisters and parents uh, soon. Words are powerful. Words change lives. Words shape history, especially the words of those people who have some influence to lead a movement. In 1924, a man called Adolf Hitler was in prison. He began writing a book that was part autobiography and part outlining his own political beliefs. It was entitled Mein Kampf, My Struggle, and eventually he published it in two volumes. It became a bestseller in Germany in the 1930s. Some people ignored it. But for every single word in Mein Kampf, 125 people died in the Second World War. Words are powerful. In 1848, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels published a pamphlet called The Communist Manifesto. It had a dark green cover. It was published in London. It was just 23 pages long. And yet it has been called the most influential text written in the 19th century. The Communist Manifesto shaped a global movement, a movement that dominated much of the world for the next 150 years and still does in this day. Vast countries, millions and millions of people have had their lives shaped by those words. Words are powerful. Jesus Christ never wrote a manifesto, but the Sermon on the Mount comes close. John Stott was a great Christian leader and a preacher in central London. He wrote that this sermon has a unique fascination. It seems to present the quintessence of the teaching of Jesus. It makes goodness attractive. It shames our shabby performance. It engenders dreams of a better world. It is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus although arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. Stott says, It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. Now this sermon is found in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and it occupies four pages of the Bible that is in your hands. And yet, those four pages are incredibly powerful. So we will be spending, God willing, the next three months together in this Sermon on the Mount on our Sunday mornings, hearing its challenge afresh, and then we'll be working on it and applying it in our life groups uh, together in the middle of the week. Now, why are we doing this now? In every generation, Christians are tempted to compromise with the world around them. And so are we. This temptation to compromise is usually very subtle. And when drift occurs in the Christian life, it's normally by tiny increments. It's a bit like snoozing in a boat that's floating somewhere near the beach. And the bobbing of the waves and the currents of the sea gradually take the boat out 
until finally, after a number of tiny increments, you wake up and realize you're miles away from the shore and in grave danger. And I think this is happening to some Christians in our generation and in our church. Have we become too comfortable with the world? The Bible calls this system of life that's organized without God the world. We love the gospel of God's free grace, don't we? We love it. We love the message of his love and acceptance showered on undeserving sinners, and rightly so. A lot of us are suspicious of legalism, of the kind of approach to the Christian life that's nitpicking about external behavior and tends to focus on the outward appearance and not on the heart, and rightly so. And we've heard the call to be in the world, to cherish friendships with non-believing people, to love our neighbors, to serve the city, to work hard at a day job, and rightly so. But while we are in the world, are we also becoming of it? Are we becoming indistinguishable, Christian friends? Is Grace Church Manchester known for its holiness, for its radical commitment to the teachings of Jesus? Will Redeemer Church be? Well, what would such holiness and radical commitment actually look like? That's what the Sermon on the Mount tells us. We need to hear the voice of Jesus again. And if we're prepared to listen, he will tell us afresh what it means to follow him. So will you listen? Christians here, uh, we need to hear the authentic voice of Jesus again. And get ready because it won't always be soothing. It is a loving voice, but it is bracing. We may be tempted to blunt some of the sharp edges of what Jesus is going to say. Many have tried to soften his message. As a New Testament scholar called Craig Keener, Keener writes, to capture the offensiveness of Jesus' message in his own day, we must let Jesus' radical demands confront us with all the unnerving ferocity with which they would have struck their first hearers. Unnerving ferocity. This is ferocious Jesus teaching about his kingdom. At the same time, says Keener, as understanding a context of a kingdom of grace. Because it's only by drinking deep at this fountain that we will be called back to being the church that Jesus wants us to be. The distinctive, holy community that he died to create. And for those here who are not Christians, and you're so welcome with us, you're here because you're curious about Jesus. Maybe you're a curious skeptic. You need to hear this too so that you can understand the essence of Jesus' teaching, which turned the world upside down, to see goodness made attractive and to see the only path that will lead to real life, both now and in the future. Because at the end of the day, the Sermon on the Mount is showing us the way to life. That's why we did the spoiler uh, earlier on and read the end of the sermon as well as the beginning. Have a look again at chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. Everyone, Jesus says, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 
is a story of two men. They're both house builders. They both go down to Wix and B&Q and buy the same materials, and they put up the structure. And then they put in the windows and doors and the plumbing and the electricity. And they both spend a ton of money on paint and carpets and furniture and appliances. And they do a lot of trips to Ikea after spending way too much time studying the Ikea catalogue. And then when they get the stuff to their house, they find out there's that one screw that's missing and go back to Ikea again. We've all done it. They finish their work finally and they both sit down to enjoy their lovely new home. Both of them are very comfortable. The houses look really similar, probably because everything in them came from Ikea. They look the same, but there's a crucial difference that's not visible from the outside. It's that one of them is built on rock and the other is built on sand. Now, one night, these two men are sitting in their respective living rooms watching telly, and a storm breaks. It's okay, they think. I know the roof is sound. So they're not worried as the rain comes down. And as the children's song goes, the rain came down and the floods came up. It's relentless. Maybe these men live in Manchester. It pours with rain until the river bursts its banks and comes flooding through the estate. And the water hits the houses with great force. And at that point, and only then, the difference between the two houses is revealed. Because one stands firm and it will dry out tomorrow. But the other one collapses and everything is utterly lost. All the IKEA furniture is washed away. Now, what are these houses a picture of? Our lives. Your life, mine. Jesus Christ is saying, our lives are like those houses. So the question is, what's your foundation? Now, this is how radical Jesus is. Look at, again at verse 24. He says... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, what's the difference between this guy and the foolish man? Is it that the foolish man never heard the words of Jesus? Look at what it says, verse 26. He heard them, but he didn't put them into practice. You see what he's saying? Jesus Christ is actually making a bold claim here. He's saying he commands our destiny. Our response to his words is determinative of whether our life will ultimately stand and succeed or whether it will be destroyed. If we trust and follow and obey Jesus, we will find life. But if we don't, then no matter what happens, our life will be We'll have no foundation, and one day it'll be utterly swept away. And therefore, friends, tune back in if you're zoning out here. It's absolutely imperative we don't not only hear the sermon, but make sure we put it into practice. And the alarming thing about this Sermon on the Mount is it's not making a contrast between a religious person and a non-religious person. How easy that would be. It's not making that contrast. It's not saying, get religion. Saying, get Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, the contrast isn't between some people who pray and some people who don't pray. In fact, both people pray. They look very similar on the outside. They're both praying, but they're inside they are completely different. The contrast in the Sermon on the Mount is not between somebody who gives and somebody who doesn't give. They both give. They look very similar on the outside. They're both giving, but on the inside they're completely different. Both pray, 
Both give. Both go to church. Yet one is building a life on the foundation of Jesus and his teaching, and the other is building on sand, and all will be lost. So if you are a sand Christian here, and in a room this size there may well be some, if you're a sand Christian, we love you, but we pray that the Sermon on the Mount will expose that, your weak foundation, and cause you to come to Jesus truly. And do you know what? Some preachers have been saved while preaching their own sermon. It's happened. People have Men have been preaching, and while they were preaching, they realized they weren't really converted, and they've been saved there and then. Is that embarrassing, or is it glorious? In the 1960s, my parents were uh, sent to Wales to lead five small Methodist churches. My dad was a 25-year-old new pastor, 25-year-old for five small churches in Wales. And uh, he and my mum moved down there. And they set up a mission, and they had a speaker come who was a great speaker, and he preached the gospel one day in the church. And he made an appeal. Have you ever been in a meeting like that? He made an appeal. If anybody wants to trust Jesus and follow him, come, come down to the front and we'll pray with you. And it all went quiet. And everyone's thinking, is anyone going to do it? And then this young woman with a miniskirt tottered from the back of the church down to the front to be prayed for. It was my mum pastor's wife now whether she was a real christian before or not i don't know but she needed to come to jesus and maybe that's you maybe you're a sand christian you know it all oh you know it. you can win all the bible trivia around in the pub maybe you even went to the pub but you don't really build your life on jesus and his teaching this series is for you friends so let's hear those opening words again Chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And this is what he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is this Sermon on the Mount? It's really a kingdom manifesto. A kingdom manifesto. We might call it the Jesus Manifesto. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, you can see it further up the left-hand column. Jesus has started to preach, and his message is summarized as in this one sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent means turn around and change your mind. Okay, but what is this kingdom of heaven, and what does repentance look like? Good question. And so he begins to answer it. He goes up the mountain, and on the mountainside, he calls his disciples to him. He sits down, which is the authoritative teaching position of a rabbi, and he starts to preach. And no one has heard anything like this before. They come to him, and he paints a portrait. It's, a, it's like a, a, a line drawing or a picture, a portrait of a, of a disciple. This is what a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. 
And he sets out these eight qualities that will characterize his followers. Now, these eight qualities are not optional, and you don't get to choose which ones you have. You don't say, you know, I'm a good peacemaker, but I'm not really the meek type. Uh, just as the ninefold fruit of the Spirit should ripen in every Christian life, so these eight Beatitudes describe Jesus' ideal for every citizen of his kingdom. You can see how the list is tied together because in verse 3 and verse 10, they both have the same promised blessing. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's a way of, of tying the whole thing together as a unity. Now, the first four of these qualities describe a Christian's relationship to God. And the last four describe our relationship to one another, broadly speaking. And so for the remainder of our time together, I just want to speak about the first four. And Greg will pick up uh, the next time those last four blessings. What do we learn here about the kingdom? It's an inside-out, upside-down, now and future kingdom. It's inside-out, it's upside-down, it's now and future. Firstly, inside-out. Kingdom citizens are changed from the inside-out. Look at these qualities. They're all internal, poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're about a disposition. They're about the way a person is on the inside. So what are these things? Well, poverty of spirit is an interesting phrase. The word poor normally means people who are economically disadvantaged. But in the Old Testament, this had kind of extended to, to, to a wider meaning of people who knew they were needy and people who knew that they needed God and therefore depended on him. It often characterized people who were the, the really poor, what we might call the indigent poor or people on benefits. So the best translation of this is spiritually poor. He's talking about people who come to God and when they think about God and when they approach God, they're coming with no sense of entitlement and with no sense that they've got something to offer and with no sense of their own goodness, but in fact a deep awareness of their own sin. And they come before God empty-handed. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And because they're poor in spirit, because they come to God in that way, they, they, they're mournful. Now again, it's a general kind of word, and it's a strange paradox, isn't it? Jesus says, blessed are you if you are more a mourner. You're really happy if you're really sad. See, his kingdom's kind of all messed up. The word is a blanket term for grieving and sadness, and it doesn't suggest here the source of the sorrow. But we know that they're poor in spirit because they've come to God empty-handed. And so these mourners are grieving over their sin. They've seen their need before God. They've seen their lack of righteousness, and it grieves them to the heart, and they're sorrowful about it. They're genuinely sorry for their sins. That makes them meek. Now, this is a word that Jesus used of himself. Later on in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says to his followers, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentle and humble in heart, the same word there is used for meekness. It's a humble person. And because they're humble toward God, they're gentle towards others because they don't feel superior. They don't feel entitled. 
They don't feel that everybody owes them something. They're not overly impressed with their own self-importance. As somebody who has a realistic view of themselves, the disciples will be like Jesus, gentle and humble. And the third quality comes out of that. It's a hunger and a thirsting for something called righteousness. What is this word? It has many different layers. It can mean right conduct, good conduct, holy living. Living in a right way before God and before human beings. It can also refer to justice. Justice in society. When we pray for governments, as Rupert did earlier on, we pray that they will pass righteous laws. There's a personal sense and there's a corporate sense. But we don't need to choose between them. What's in view here is somebody who is yearning for righteousness. They want themselves to change and live right. And they persistently seek after it. And they want to see the world put right and live under God's good rule. Kingdom citizens will always be yearning to be more righteous and for the world to be a just place. Notice there's a kind of a progression in there from poverty of spirit to mourning to meekness, to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And these are all things that are about a person who's been changed on the inside. And then that changes the way they are on the outside. It doesn't matter about your looks. It doesn't matter about your ability, your background. It doesn't matter about your education or lack of it. It doesn't matter what ethnic background you're from, social class, or how much money you have. None of that matters. The thing that matters to Jesus, the really important thing is in life, is whether you have this kind of heart. Poor in spirit. Mourning over sin. Meek and gentle. And thirsting to change. Are you like that? See, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is concerned with the inside of a person, with their heart. According to Jesus, this is the way the world will really change. It's the way that heaven comes to earth. It's the way to a true community. By starting with the inner transformation of individual people, men, women, boys and girls, who then come together in churches. So are you like this? Do you know? Have you ever examined yourself? And thought, when I come to God, am I coming with a sense of what he owes me? Or a sense of nothing and how I deserve to be punished, but he's freely forgiven me. Are you genuinely sorry for your sins or just glad that you don't get caught? Are you meek and humble toward other people and their failings? Or are you quite harsh and judgmental about their failings? You look down on people. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or are you basically hunger and thirsting for the same things the rest of the world wants? Money and sex and career and relationships. Empty things. What do you really want? It's an inside-out kingdom. Secondly, it's an upside-down kingdom. Notice that Jesus, when he starts talking about the good life, he totally turns upside down and subverts what we normally think as the best things to have in life. He, he, he says that all these things are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. And what does this word blessed mean? It means 
abundantly happy. It means living the good life. One person translates it, wonderful news. Wonderful news to the poor in spirit. Wonderful news to those who mourn. Wonderful news to the meek. Wonderful news to those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because what? Now surely we want to be strong, don't we? Self-confident, full of zest and joy, successful, wealthy, happy all the time. But look at what Jesus calls blessed. He's turned the categories upside down. Now, he can't mean that these are sort of timeless truths for the whole of society and that they're always true for human behavior. Leo Tolstoy, the author of War and Peace, believed that. And he tried to set up community where a, 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 for society that, that tried to live the Sermon on the Mount. And he found that it absolutely failed. Because we know that mourners often go uncomforted in life, don't we? The meek don't usually inherit the earth. And those longing for righteousness often take that longing with them to the grave. So what does Jesus mean? The point is that with Jesus, God is now doing a new thing in the world. And with Jesus, a new king has come. And in this new era, this new kingdom, Jesus is turning the world upside down. He's come to bring the grace of God and all the blessings of God to people like this. People who are poor in spirit, mourn over their sin, are meek and hungering for righteousness. These are people who don't feel they deserve anything from God. They've got a realistic view of themselves. Such people are now promised the most lavish blessings. He says, you have the kingdom of heaven. It's yours, verse 3. Verse 4, you will be comforted. Verse 5, you will inherit the earth. And verse 6, you will be filled, satisfied, completely fulfilled. Now, just in those four verses, Jesus has promised most of the things that we go through life wanting, hasn't he? I want to live a satisfied life, fulfilled, meaningful. I would like to inherit the earth, it's true. And I'd like to inherit 10,000 pounds, but you know, the earth would be, would be good. I'd like to be comforted in sorrow and sadness. I'd like light to break into my darkness. Jesus is promising here heaven and earth to his followers. He's holding out, in other words, Immense comfort and assurance to those who will follow him. If you come to God, he's saying, in a sense of complete need, if you mourn for your sins, if that makes you into a gentle, humble person, if you yearn for righteousness, then all these things are going to be given to you. He's promising it. Now, have you ever done that? Again, thinking back to my mum, in her miniskirt, tottering down to the front of the church. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the Bible, teaching the Bible, singing songs. Sometimes we don't just make the simple observation that God is holy and just and angry with sins, and we needed to be rescued, and Jesus Christ came for us, and on the cross paid for our sins, rose from the dead, and now promises us forgiveness if you go to him in faith. Have you ever done that? If not, would you do it today? Would you come to him now and ask him to forgive you and to change you?
And if that's you, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the meeting. It's an inside-out kingdom. The change happens on the inside. It works its way out. It's upside down. It, it subverts all our categories and what we expect. And finally, in conclusion, it's now and future. Because when we look at these things that Jesus is saying, we, we find ourselves asking, when is this going to happen? You're saying that the people are blessed who are like this. You know, they, they, they're poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're saying that the mourners will be comforted. You're saying that those who are meek will be uh, inherited the earth. Well, when, when is this? Some people have concluded that it must be future. It's all kind of promises for the future. But Jesus combines his language here. He speaks as though it's happening now, but it's also in the future. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've got the kingdom right now. But you will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be filled. So is it present or future? What do you think? Alia's mouthing the answer, both. The kingdom is here right now, but it's not here fully. It's here right now. And if you come to Jesus Christ in faith, you will find yourself being forgiven, being comforted, being filled, but also full of yearning for more and more of him and more and more of righteousness until the day we see him face to face. The kingdom is here, but not yet fully. It's inside out. It's upside down. It's now. And yet, it is future too. And we live in anticipation of the day when it is fully here. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. And we want to be those who search the scriptures diligently, like the Bereans, and have a noble spirit. And we want to be those also who tremble at your word, not just be hearers only, but to be doers of it as well. We don't want to be like the foolish man, uh, hearing things and then going away and not putting them into practice, having a life built on sand. We, we want to be like the wise man, hearing your word, assessing what we're like and going away and changing. Help us to do that. Help us to do it individually. Help us to do it in our small groups, our life groups this week. Help us to do it corporately. Even now, Lord, as we sing our final song or two, we ask that you'd be speaking to us and showing us where we need to put things right. But we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.